Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we think of the passage that says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. This is true. This is good. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I was seated at a table with a few folks here from church. We were having a discussion. We were talking about this new genre that is becoming increasingly popular. Um, It's the genre of graphic novels. And for those of you who are um, ignorant as I am on this subject matter, Um, back in the day, there was a thing called comic books and they were essentially magazines, were they not? You know, 20 or so pages of, of comics and largely they circled around superheroes. And over the time, this genre, to my newest understanding, has grown to where it's not just small magazines, short read magazines, but now full length novels, graphic novels, but further Not only has these books grown in length, to include full-length novels, but also in spectrum, so that it's not just fiction. You can now go find graphic novels that tell history in picture and word format. Um, And so there are various forms of this out there, from from history to to non-fiction topics to novels where you have these cartoon types of illustrations and various styles of that, but increasingly more text weaved in with it to help carry along. And this has become a a popular uh, teenage uh, thing where you are now seeing larger sections in bookstores, larger sections in libraries of these graphic novels. And as we were sitting at the table discussing this, the topic came up, we need to see more Christian versions of this hot new genre. We need to see more, could you imagine, more and more of these types of graphic novels that weaved in books of the Bible or um, broke away and dealt with modern day Christian issues, but from this particular genre. Could you imagine truth 
history, the reality of the gospel weaved into story format. And thankfully, this is becoming a thing. There are some of these books coming onto the scene, a great resource for us to use. Well, what has happened with the Christian graphic novels of today is not too far off from what happened with this genre called apocalyptic in the first century. From around 200 BC to 200 AD, it was a popular form of writing. Um, and, and no, there, there were no drawings for apocalyptic, but in some sense, there's a little bit of overlap and that it's filled with imagery. So it's not just direct, direct teaching, but imagery that helps you learn and understand and perceive. They say that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And so you could imagine uh, when you bring up imagery along with the words, it double communicates. For example, pretend I said, I just heard, a, I heard a voice say, uh, get ready to eat. And then as I heard the voice, get ready to eat, I looked over here and in my mind's eye, I see a river flowing with mangoes and papayas and pineapples. Well, the meaning is get ready to have a fruit smoothie. I mean, that's exactly, wouldn't you walk away with that? I mean, am I crazy? You would say, oh, get ready to eat. Eat what? Eat eat fruit, lots of this fruit, and plenty of it. It's a river full of it. And so, not just the words, but the pictures come in line together to give a singular, strong message to us. Because this genre of apocalyptic, it's not just telling, but it's showing as well. It's showing and telling the truth of the gospel. And in the showing, we see apocalyptic at work. And yet this book, unlike some of the forms of prophecy or sorry, of apocalyptic that you would see from about 200 years before Christ to about 200 years after Christ, some of that apocalyptic was just there as mere reading entertainment. But what is clear when you turn to this book in the book of Revelation is it's not just apocalyptic, it is also prophetic in that it is not merely just something to be enjoyed. It also calls us to an ethical understanding and relation to the material we read. You understand that prophecy, oftentimes we hear that word prophecy and we think it has only to do with future telling. But most of prophecy The heartbeat of prophecy is really ethical in nature. It's how we're to live in relation to our good God, in relation to what he's done in the past, in the present, and yes, at times we've seen prophecy, what he will do in the future. And and so that is the case with this letter here, the book of Revelation as well. It is apocalyptic and it is prophetic in that sense, but also it is a letter. It is epistolary in nature. Um, just as if I sent you an email this afternoon, I get on, I must type your name. This is personal. It's from me to you. It's a letter. I have something I want to communicate to you. And so too, this email, this letter goes out to seven local churches in Asia Minor. And though it remains to be a book using symbols and images, and and these images and symbols relate very much to what is true and real and experienced by these seven local churches in, in Asia Minor, but also, as we'll see, they relate to Christians of all times and all places. And so this book then is written to a church that is under attack. 
That is undergirding this whole book of Revelation. It's written to a church under attack, and it certainly was written to real Christians living with real struggles, facing real issues, and they needed real encouragement. And so, this book is written with intention and meaning. This is a book that is meant to reveal. So here goes my outline, my threefold outline. It's a book meant to reveal, verses 1 and 2. It is a book that's meant to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, verses 4 through 8. But also, as we'll conclude with, this is a book that is to be read with a blessing. That's verse 3, and we'll conclude with that. First, this is a book that is meant to reveal. We know from the very first word of this book, the title is Revelation, The Revelation. And so, the revelation here is singular. You need to understand this. The revelation, it's just a singular revelation. It is not revelations, although if you read through the book, you'll see several things revealed. It is a singular revelation. So, if you come to me this afternoon and you say, revelations, I love the book of revelations, lightning won't strike, but you will see an eye twinge and probably a vein begin to pop because the revelation is singular. And what it's doing is primarily revealing one thing through the many scenes that we see throughout the book. And now, even within the first few words here of the book of Revelation, we read it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting because in the English as well as in in the Greek, it is true that this of here, it, it does leave it a bit open. To where you say, is this a revelation that is of Jesus Christ? As in other words, a revelation that has come from Jesus Christ that is going out? Or is this a revelation that is about Jesus Christ? Is it from him or is it about him? Which of is this? And the truth is, the grammar leaves it open for both. It leaves it open. It could be either or. The immediate context right here is that this is a revelation from him. Catch the chain of transmission to gain a fuller picture here. It is a revelation from God, from God given to Christ, which then he gives to an angel, and then the angel then gives it to John, and then John will then cast it out to these seven churches. There's this whole chain that comes. And so it is very much clear that this is a revelation from Jesus to the angel, to John, to the seven churches. But also... It should be rather clear that when you read this book, you can't escape this fact, friend. It's also all about Jesus. It's all about him. In fact, you know, what should be clear, what this book is meant to reveal to us, and yet so many of of my friends and, and others come to various conclusions on what this book is primarily about. Some will quickly tell you that this is a book that's meant to reveal all the events that are supposed to take place in the future, to which I say, yeah. And, and others will say, well, this primarily is really just a book about a, a battle between good and evil, to which I also say, yeah. Uh, others may say something like, well, I think most of these events, certainly some of these events here that you see in Revelation have already been fulfilled, at least prior to 70 AD, to which I also say, okay, yeah. And yet, while any of these views has truth to it, I think it misses the mark of what this book is primarily revealing to us. It's trying to reveal from a completely different angle that you rarely see Jesus Christ. 
It misses the mark if we don't see Jesus as the central figure. Friends, in chapter 1, we will see, and this week and part of next week, that he is the majestic, eternal, sovereign king. In chapters 2 and 3, we will see that he is the Lord of the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, they reveal him to be the only one who is worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll. He's the only one who is worthy to open the scroll and to redeem those who have fallen. In chapters 6 and 7, we find that Jesus is the God who brings righteous judgment to those who hate him and salvific protection and safety for those who love and live for him. Now, I could go on and on through each chapter, but uh, for time's sake, just see that this book radically centers around Jesus Christ. Friends, this is not a book that is meant to confuse us. This is not a book that is meant to hinder us from actually seeing what's there. The very name of this book is to reveal so that you would see, so that you would walk away and go, ah, I get it now. I see. It's clear. The apocalypse has this idea of revealing, unveiling, and showing. So we're supposed to walk away going, I see something here. Now, some of us presume That God might be the one who wants to hide from us. We say, well, God is always, I've asked for a prayer. I've, I've asked for help in this regard and, or I'm, or I'm trying to find him in some way. And that God is always trying to hide himself from us. This book shows us no friends. He wants you to see him and to know him. He's not a mirage. Uh, you, you know, when you go to the desert and you see a mirage, it looks like an oasis and you come closer, but then the, 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 uh, mirage moves the oasis further away from you. And so you must keep trying to get closer. Some really presume that that's how God works. The closer you try to get to him, the further he backs away. This book shows us, no, he, he wants to be seen. He wants to be understood. He wants us to come in and see that Jesus here is to be revealed to us. And just under Jesus being revealed as the main subject, we we find that Revelation seeks to reveal God's purposes and plans for judgment and redemption. And here's where we become shocked into reality uh, like none other. It, It is clear further that this book is intended for the recipients of this book are first his servants. That's what we read right here. The servants. Servants would be a general term that is used for Christians who want to live and serve Jesus. It might be a term that can be expanded to really include the church universal. Even as he's going to address these local churches to which we will soon look at in a few weeks. Uh, But but here he begins by, by appointing this letter to the servants. And so even as the servants who originally received this letter, but also this letter is for us. Now, It is puzzling when we read here these words in the first verse that the events and the things that we read here in this book are to soon take place. And there are many views on how this actually comes about. And uh, I think there are many faithful views to scripture that try to understand this. Uh, One of the popular views right now is considering that the timeline of this book is somewhat relative. In other words, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Uh, that, that is a possibility. Another popular view here is that whenever the events kick off in this book, in other words, whenever they're supposed, supposed to have started, that all of them will happen in rapid fire succession, that it'll be quick, 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 and it will soon all take place in this singular bubble. Um, 
And yet, due to the grammar, I lean towards more of a, a straightforward reading of this, of that word soon. That, that the word soon here is, is quite often found in Revelation. You find it in one one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then the book closes with this idea. In Revelation 22, verse 6, he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And so because of the emphasis, I lean towards taking this phrase on its face. Uh, Surely, many of the events that we read in this book have not happened. They're not completed. We're not living on the new heaven. We're not living in the new earth, those sort of things. But I see that the first century church would have been able to read this and see that these events have at least been kicked off. That some of the things that we read in this book have at least begun to go into motion. That's my take. Others have other takes. That's fine. What we need to do is continue to keep our eyes here on the overarching emphasis that this book holds, regardless of our different views in it. Um, This brings us to the reality, though, as the church, something that we do need to acknowledge and understand is that we are, regardless of how you structured this book, we are friends living in the last days. Um, so many of us, we've, we've, we, uh, we, we struggle, are we in the last days? Are those yet to come? And yet from a biblical perspective, we must put our finger right here in the text where it says we are in the last days. We're living in them now. Um, perhaps you've forgotten about Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he highlights the prophecy of Joel, which was in the Old Testament, speaking about the last days where the Spirit of God would dwell with man as being fulfilled. And Peter says, this is fulfilled. In other words, the last days have come and have been prevailing for 2,000 years now. The book of Hebrews opens up with long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, these days, He has spoken to us by his son. Or we can think of the same author who wrote this book, the Revelation. We believe the Apostle John, who also wrote 1 John in chapter 2, verse 18, where he says, Children, it is the last hour. And so you've heard the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. In other words, John's emphasis there, one of the things that marks these last days that are carrying on is many people coming up giving false teaching, being false messiahs. That marks the characteristics of this time. Would you say, well, will things heighten and get worse at the very end? Eh, probably, yeah. That, that, that seems to be what we read in many sections. But just understand, church, we are living in the last days, which means we are under attack right now. And we'll come back to that. But let me point here uh, as we turn. I want us to see that in a book like Revelation, because this war rages on and the enemy seeks to overtake us, this is a book that wants us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 4 through 8 one more time. Just look through here, and as I'm reading, think through how this keeps our eyes on Jesus. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Through him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him 
Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. First, I want you to note here how we have this grace and peace that is coming not from John. John is not bringing this grace and peace. It is coming from the Trinity itself. Here we see the eternal God or God the Father. We also see Jesus himself, who was the first to raise from the dead and never die again. And then we get this hint of him being the king. You've heard the phrase king of kings and lord of lords. Well, here we get a hint at this when the text reads the ruler of the kings. In other words, we we ought not to forget that all the, the, the nation's leaders, all those who rule in authority in these sort of realms, that ultimately at the end of the day, that God has him, that Christ has them in his grasp. Nothing that they're doing is escaping his notice or, or, or his sovereign oversight. And so the picture that we get is those who are ruling, he ultimately has them in the grasp. And sandwiched right in between this, we see the seven spirits uh, there in between God the Father and the Son. These seven spirits in a book like Revelation where numbers count. In other words, numbers always are, almost always are pertaining to a symbolic reference the idea here may be that this is the totality of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, the Son, and in between, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it seems to be that where else would this grace and peace truly come from? Except from the totality of the Trinity, all of the Godhead, sending to the angel, sending to John and to the churches, grace and peace. Now, I'll I'll attempt to make the case later, and feel free to disagree, that what we really have here is the totality of God bringing a message of grace and warning to the totality of the church. Seven churches hinting at, or at least sweeping in, the church universal. Now, John stands, as it were, here in between these two. On one side, seven churches he's writing. On the other side, the Almighty God, the Trinity itself, and he stands in between. And what you think that he ought to be the the conduit to deliver would be and should be a message of judgment and terror. Think of this through. In a book like this, with so much widespread judgment, why is it that God, the Almighty Trinity, would be delivering to this church over here, these churches, grace and peace? Shouldn't it be widespread terror and judgment as we see in many sections of this book, why grace and peace? It's right there on the page. He loves us and he freed us. Do you see that? He loves us and freed us in verse 5. Friends, we were on a path to be separated from our God forever because of our sin, our rebellion. I, I ask you, have you ever thought One rebellious thought? Have you ever had a thought of anger that was unrighteous, of lust that was unrighteous? Have you ever had one unholy thought? God says even the way we think separates us from him, let alone our actions that actually enact out these things. The picture that we deserve here is death and separation. In fact, it's even worse than that because 
Outside of God, the picture he says is that we're imprisoned. So it's not just a separation. It's a separation into a pit where you're bound up. You're imprisoned by this, locked up from freedom. And the good news that John wants to tell us this morning is that this frighteningly powerful God loves us and freed us. If you don't know this morning, if this love and freedom is supposed to be for you, friend, I encourage you, speak with another Christian here. Speak with me, speak with someone, because this message of love and freedom is meant for you. So speak with somebody. This is so important, but I also want you to catch, listen in for more of the key details here. Because Jesus not just freed us, but he freed us by means of something. Look at this, by verse 5, by his blood. He freed us from sin by his blood. This is shorthand to say that we deserved in our rebellion to be the sacrifice for our own sin. To say it a different way, our blood is the cost for our sin. And even then, it doesn't rectify the situation. You know, if I was driving out here on 26 and driving recklessly and I just knock into somebody's car and we both pull over and I say, hey man, I'm so sorry, here's a couple thousand dollars, that should take care of it. Well, I may have paid that, but that guy driving the other car, he doesn't just suddenly like me. He doesn't just suddenly love me. No. So you see that even just by our own blood paying the payment, it doesn't restore the relationship. Friends, for that to happen, it would take the grace of God to intervene. It would take God to intervene and pay with his own life. That then if he pays with his own life because he so loves us and freed us, that then we would have true grace, true peace from God. And here then is where the connection of God's love for us and the cross intertwine. Don, Don Carson, in several places I've listened to or, or read, I've, I've uh, read him speaking about this time where he was away. He was over in Papua New Guinea for a, uh, a Wycliffe um, you know, missions get-together. And there was about 600 or so missionaries there at the time in Papua New Guinea who joined together for this conference. And he says, look, I, was, I had said some things apparently that it upset some people, but I was staying, um, I was staying next door to, to this, to this uh, gal who even just previously, just that year, her husband had been murdered by the locals. And yet she's staying on uh, there to continue to, to do the work of, of, of being a missionary and witnessing to the, to the locals there. And so he's thinking, these are the folks I'm dealing with. They are very serious about their ministry. And, and, and apparently in the midst of this, he had, you know, criticized some of the teaching that they had received earlier. And, uh, one of the, um, teachers had come through earlier and said something to the effect of, Hey, if you're struggling out here on the field and you're having a rough time, well, I want you to do this little exercise. He says, I want you to just go back to your birth in your mind. Picture that you're about to be born and this will comfort you. Go back and, 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 and picture as you are being born, picture Jesus is there standing in the room, but then picture something even more. Not only is Jesus present while you're being born, but I just want you to picture that as you're coming out, Jesus catches you and holds you and embraces you. And Carson is, is thinking, uh oh. Uh, what am I going to say to this? Because, you know, am I going to tell these people who've lost their spouses, who are continuing on in this tough terrain, that 
thinking about Jesus catching them at their birth and they're having this cathartic uh, emotional experience and their love for God is increased? Well, he, he puts it this way. He says, how, how are you going to criticize that? Because I had criticized some of the stuff that I was hearing in one of my sermons. And he had said that it, it helped me feel, this man uh, had said it helped me feel more mature, more stable, more loved in Christ. What's wrong with any of that? And he says, what would you answer? Oh, I'd rather that you not feel the love of Christ. Thank you very much. No. What I said was, look, if the consequence of this experience, you are better able to feel the love of God in Christ Jesus, I'm happy. But I'm not going to throw stones. I just want to tell you, I think that you've chosen second best. The other man that he's talking to says, I beg your pardon? Second best? Yes. You've chosen second best. Why? Because you've had an emotional, cathartic experience about Jesus Christ that's not related to where Jesus Christ most explicitly displays his love for you. Friends, was Jesus at your birth? Maybe so. Was he present there by his spirit in the room? I hope so. But when God wants to tell you how much he loves you, he didn't choose your birth. He chose the cross. This is the place where you go to know that you are loved. This is the place where God tells us that we have restoration through his blood. That he loves us and he's freed us from our sins by his blood that poured from the cross. So if you want to remember and you want to be encouraged, if you are feeling discouraged this week, if you're seeking approval and want to know that you are loved, there's nowhere else you need to go except to remember Jesus dying on the cross for you. It's where it is most explicit and most made known. Even greater, God has not just restored us to a simple position of being his servants, but also we see here in this, in this passage this morning that he's elevated us to a position of kings and priests, or a kingdom of priests, rather. This was foretold back in Exodus chapter 19, that we would become not just a bunch of priests nor a bunch of servants in a kingdom, but the images would somehow be joined together as one. That the priest would stand in the gap between God and, ma- and sinful mankind. And so this image is really nothing new. But the picture here are that we are his servants, servants of God, dwelling in his kingdom, bringing others, connecting others to God. So not only are we serving our king as we're under his kingdom, but also we're doing the work of priests, where people who are feeling disconnected from God and where God is, and we're saying we're we're doing a work of bringing them together as we speak scripture to them, as we pray for them, as we remind them of the gospel, as we love them through their trials and their struggles. And so we function as priests, connecting others with the risen Jesus in the kingdom. So Christian, don't ever make light. Don't ever make light of this work that we're given. This is an epic work that you and I are part of. And Revelation, I think, will help us see this all the more. Not only in Exodus, but also the prophet Daniel and Zechariah here are both alluded to in verse 7. I'm going to read verse 7 again. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So both these allusions to Daniel and Zechariah, uh, they seem to be initially fulfilled with the, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But here John is 
also expanding this to be uh, have in view that Jesus' second coming, his second return, when he comes again. And when he comes again, there will be wailing. It says all the tribes of the earth. In other words, all people groups, all nations, all people groups, we might say, will mourn or wail because judgment has come. I don't know if you've seen uh, like an episode of cops before where there is a, a car chase going down the highway. And eventually, you know at a certain point that it's over. Uh, the people are going, but you know, now they've got a helicopter up above. Now they have police officers in advance further down the line because they know where he's going. They've got him boxed in. They have the exits box. They have police cars behind. They're throwing out spikes to, to knock out his tires. You know, at some point, the party is over and judgment will come. And this is what we are assured of here in this book, that at some point, all will see him. And not for all will it be a joyful moment for those who've rejected Jesus. And friend, this is why it is so important to us that we not reject him while there is time that we turn to him because there will be a moment when we won't have an opportunity to, to turn back. This is why we plead, don't reject him. Turn to this God who has provided a way through his love and his grace and his peace and his blood. To reconcile you to him. And see how much Christ in his sovereignty and his power here even are in view. At verse 8 it closes the Alpha and the Omega. In other words the A to the Z. He is encompassing all. He is over all with time. With his power. All of these things coming together. So that the image we get of this king being eternal. He cannot die. He has no time frame. No people group, no human will be able to hide from him. And this will bring terror to many, but for those who love him, there will be a blessing to come. Friends, this is not a book to confuse us. It is a book to reveal Jesus Christ, the victorious king, to a church under attack. The purpose of this book is so that Jesus would pop off the page, that he would become 3D, that he would remind his bride that her groom has not forgotten her. That for all her trials, for all her struggles, for all the war she faces, that because her king and Lord is victorious, as she remains with him, she also will be victorious. And amazingly, as I close out here this morning, I want to look at one last verse where you see, reflecting on all this truth, it shows us this book is a book with a blessing. See verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now here's an interesting beatitude. You know from Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall, uh, for the kingdom of heaven will belong to them. You, you know these beatitudes. But here's an interesting one that we rarely reflect on. Blessed are those who read aloud. And those who hear and who keep what is written in this prophecy. Now, you do need to understand the church had an official position, the early church, because not everybody in the congregation could read. There was probably fewer who could read. And so they would bring somebody who would be the official reader for the church congregation. And they would do the inverse of what we're doing. So the reader would sit down and the congregation would stand. And you would remain standing for sometimes a long period of time while they would read through perhaps an entire book at a time. So 
perhaps the book like of Revelation. They would open it up and, and begin, the, the, the reader would read. And so, however fast or slow, maybe 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, this entire book would be read through. And the person reading would begin to read this at the very beginning and go, ha, 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 blessed are those who read. And then the people would listen and go, ha, ha, blessed are those who hear and keep. And then they would get all the way to the end of this book in which we would see that this is a book at chapter 22 that says, do not seal up this book. There is a blessing for letting this book be in your life that you wouldn't seal it up, that you would read it, that you would hear it, that you would let the truth of this sink into your heart. Because right now, friends, in Central Asia, there's a pastor there, Pastor Abdullah, who's facing charges for illegally hosting a home church. Right now, in Central Asia, um, not only Pastor Abdullah, but, oh, sorry, over in, in Africa, the small country of Eritrea, there's an Eritrean uh, police that went through and arrested 17 Christians who gathered together for prayer. This was just a, a month or two ago. And a week later, the authorities came back and arrested 25 more, including eight children. So 42 were arrested and imprisoned. Uh, meanwhile, down right here in Mexico, in Chiapas, Mexico, there was recently a pastor, Pastor Manuel, who had been attacked by the local villagers for being a pastor, for preaching the gospel, and he lost his arm with a machete and several of his fingers on his other side. Why read this book? Because while it looks like defeat, you would know that in the end there is victory. So that the way of Jesus now doesn't become in your heart or your soul away unto death. No, friends. No matter, when they come and they try and shut our church down, when they send in letters to us and say you cannot gather, or they come in with machetes, or they come in with the handcuffs for the pastor, we're going to remember that it may look like that is defeat, but no. This letter says, no, let's peel back and see. This is where we remain faithful and are victorious. So that you would be encouraged to be faithful to Jesus when the enemy wants to take you out. So that you would say, yes, I choose Christ and the cross rather than the easy path that leads to destruction. That rather than giving into the flow of the world or despair, that you and I would remain faithful even unto death. Friends, I know that if you read this and you believe this, you read it aloud, you hear it, you listen to the words and you keep them, I know you will be blessed. Would you pray with me? Father, give us resolve. Uh, we, we cannot see physically beyond the veil. Uh, but we praise you that through the revelation, we get the curtain pulled back so that we can really see what is going on. Uh, Lord, we, we can read a book like this and be discouraged because we scratch our heads. Help us to, to see the big picture here. Help us to see that even though you may uh, lead us through times of trial and the enemy, the dragon may rage on, that in the end, as we remain with you, we will be victorious, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.